Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On our program tonight, the new cases of COVID-19 drop slightly in Ontario and Quebec as Alberta announces more restrictions and Manitoba extends its restrictions. Canadians anxiously await the vaccine. The federal government is pushing to get its bill expanding medically assisted death passed ahead of a Quebec court deadline in just days. But Conservatives are doing all they can to block it. MPs will be here to debate that divisive issue. And our panel of parliamentary journalists will be here to discuss the ongoing pandemic response and the big first minister's meeting taking place later this week. All right, and we'll begin tonight with the latest on the rollout plans for COVID-19 vaccines. On a day when a 90-year-old retired British shop clerk received the first shot in the world as the UK's mass vaccination program gets underway. In this country, the efforts continue to bring down infections as hospitalizations rise in some provinces. And as Canadians continue to ask the all-important question, when will the vaccinations begin in this country? There is agreement that the most vulnerable seniors in long-term care homes and staff and other seniors should get the vaccines first. But Canada's chief public health officer said today the first doses will likely go to those who can make it to one of the 14 sites across Canada where the Pfizer vaccine will be shipped. But it's true that you cannot move um, residents very easily from a long-term care facility to a vaccination site. So that's just the realities. In the meantime, you've got to continue to protect long-term care facilities, as I said, using all the public health measures necessary, and uh, including testing and screening and uh, um, uh, personal protective equipment to protect our elders. Dr. Isaac Bogosh is an infectious disease specialist and a member of the Ontario Vaccine Distribution Task Force. He's with me now. Uh, Dr. Bogosh, good to see you again. Look, we've seen the images today of the first person in the world getting vaccinated, the 90-year-old grandmother in the UK. Um, where do you think that leaves us now? When you see those images, what were you thinking? Oh, this is just monumental. We didn't know this infection existed 12 months ago. And now mass vaccine programs are rolling out. So this is just an incredible, incredible era. Having said that, there's a lot of hard work ahead. We still have to have this approved in Canada. We have to get it shipped and unrolled in Canada. We know it's going to be, you know, a, an ongoing process initially with a limited supply, but a, a hopeful, hopefully growing supply. So there's a lot of hard work ahead. Having said that, when you see an image like that mm. with you know, an elderly woman who fits the priority group for vaccination in a real world program outside of a clinical trial, it's just phenomenal to see. What is your level of confidence on, on how the vaccine rollout is developing so far in this country? I know you're particularly focused on Ontario, but based on what you're hearing from the feds and, and the provinces, how, what's your level of confidence here? I'd say it's pretty high. I mean, it, and it actually started long before we've heard about some of the nuances of the rollout approach. I know the, the knives are out from a political side of things. I just don't deal on that side. But we, we, we've heard about, you know, how... Canada has been able to get access to seven different vaccines, and the choice of those vaccines was pretty good because, quite frankly, the, the top uh, vaccines that we've had access to are likely to be the ones that are going to be rolled out and completed their phase three clinical trials and rolled out in real-world settings the first. So 
whoever was making those decisions, I think those were very good decisions. We've heard about dry runs of picking up and distributing the vaccines to the various provinces. We've heard about the various provinces rapidly working on how they're going to deploy it to priority populations. It just looks like all the puzzle pieces are starting to align. I think still, having said that, I think there's going to be expected bumps on the road. There for sure are going to be bumps on the road. But in general, I think that this approach was rather well thought out and, and hopefully we'll, it'll be a smooth transition. But I guess that remains to be seen. We have to and we'll be looking at this retrospectively to really judge how good it was in the end. In, in the U.S. today, the Food and Drug Administration has released documents to support the, uh, uh, the, the, that the Pfizer vaccine has been strongly protective in all those test trials and the evidence they've seen against COVID-19. Uh, the U.S. expected to approve the vaccine in just a matter of days. We're still waiting uh, for the verdict from, from Health Canada. So notwithstanding the vetting process in this country and the fact it has to take place, is Health Canada's approval a, a mere formality at this point, given what we've seen in Britain and in the U.S.? I would say no. I would say it isn't. I mean, it's really important that these independent government bodies pour over the data without any interference or pressure externally. And Health Canada has done that in the past. We saw them do that with, for example, the serology tests that were being unrolled, I don't know, several months ago. And for example, many were approved in the United States by the FDA with emergency authorization. But Health Canada said, no, we don't want them thanks, but no thanks, they're not good enough. So just because one country does one thing, it doesn't mean another country will do the same. Mm. Having said that, I think it's likely, in fact, very likely that Health Canada will approve this and that we'll start to see vaccine programs start to roll out if, what sounds like immediately afterward. What, what do we know about who will get vaccinated first in Canada? Are you, are you getting a sense now that there is a, uh, there is a consensus uh, across the provinces about who needs to get vaccinated first and, and uh, how that might happen? Yeah, so it's been very helpful because at a federal level, there is a, a national vaccine committee and they have poured over all the data and really set aside who should be prioritized first. And basically their conclusions, which are data driven, suggested that it would be people at greatest risk of having the infection or getting people at greatest risk of getting the infection and people at greatest risk of having severe outcomes for this infection. So that's frontline healthcare workers, those who live and work in long-term care facilities and indigenous populations. Makes sense to me. Now the provinces are looking at that and trying to integrate that into their programs. And certainly we heard yesterday that Ontario mm -hmm. didn't veer at all from that. And that's those are the priority populations for the first wave of vaccinations in Ontario. Again, I think it's a smart approach and it's a data-driven approach. So it's, it'd be a little bit strange if you saw yeah. someone from that. So, I, I, although I, I think you know, you, you've pointed out, and I think it's an important point to, to reinforce, you've, you've pointed out in social media that residents and staff in long-term care homes in Ontario, uh, you've touched on it, will get the vaccine first, but I think this is important. It sounds like the first people to get it will be those located in those Ontario hot zones, and I think that's important for people to know, right, in the efforts to knock down this virus. A hundred percent. That's it's not just who's going to be vaccinated, it's where they're going to be vaccinated. And, you know, it just totally makes sense. Like, we should go to the you know, you want to pour the water on the flames, right? Not beside the flames. So uh, it's, uh, I think that's a really smart approach. And they, they announced that yesterday. So yeah, kudos to them for uh, for taking the right steps to get the right populations in the right locations prioritized first. What are the, let's finish on this, big outstanding question marks for you still and how Canada's approaching this? Uh, how much vaccine we're going to get, when we're going to get it. Basically, that's it. And, and you know, quite frankly, I expect that they might not have the answers to that, even though we have contracts. But how much we get and when we're going to get it is going to completely influence how 2021 unrolls in Canada. At the end of the day, though, I think it's pretty clear that we have access to a tremendous number of vaccinations, different types of vaccines and a high volume of vaccines. 
And I think that as this year progresses, things are just going to get easier and easier and easier and better and better and better on all aspects of life in Canada. So there, I think there really is a lot to be hopeful for, even though it's pretty ugly right now. We still have to adhere to our fundamental public health principles because there's a lot of COVID-19 in much of the country. It looks like if we keep ourselves and our families and our communities safe for the time being, 2021 is going to be a good year. All right, uh, Dr. Isaac Bogach, as always, thanks so much for your time today. I do appreciate it. My pleasure. Have a great day. Well, Conservative MPs continue to hold up the passage of Bill C-7. That's the government bill aimed at expanding the access to medically assisted death. And the clock is ticking down to a deadline of December 18th imposed by a Quebec court, which found unconstitutional the existing law's requirement that an individual seeking a physician-assisted death face a reasonably foreseeable natural death. The bill debated at third reading in the House today would remove the requirement for a 10-day waiting period where death is reasonably foreseeable. Conservatives want that maintained. And the bill would also maintain a 90-day waiting period for individuals whose death is not reasonably foreseeable. The Conservatives say they want that extended to 120 days. Well, let's bring in three members of Parliament to debate where we are in this issue and what could happen next. Arif Varani is the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Justice. Rob Moore is the Justice Critic for the Official Opposition Conservatives. And Lindsay Matheson is the Deputy Whip for the NDP. Good to see you all. Mr. Varani, let me start with you. Why does the government believe these changes it's uh, proposing to the rules around medically assisted dying are a step forward well i think these are a step forward because they directly respond to what the court outlined in the trushan decision we've heard a lot about persons with disabilities in this case the two litigants in that case um, uh, mr trushan and madame gladu were themselves persons with disabilities they wanted the same competence and autonomy that all canadians who are able-bodied have that's what the court ruled was invalid with the old law and we're amending the law to conform with that decision. I think it's unfortunate that we've seen not efforts in good faith to improve the bill, but efforts to simply slow the bill or delay it because of, I think, what are deep-seated ideological problems with the bill. And what we're asking for is Conservatives to act as parliamentarians to observe a court deadline and ensure that the human right that is medical assistance in dying that 300,000 Canadians have con- can communicate to us about actually sees the light of day let me, and let we me bring that in court Mr. deadline. Moore, Mr. Moore here. Uh, Mr. Moore, the House has already rejected uh, the Conservative proposals that I talked about that uh, would change this government bill. Um, so you, you know the House is lined up against your party. So uh, explain to me why Conservatives are trying so hard to continue to block these changes. Well, you know, I think the the underlying issue is not uh, being presented uh, exactly as it should by the Liberals. Number one, uh, this deadline is one that they're arbitrarily uh, pushed themselves up against by proroguing the House of Commons. They prorogued for over a month, and now they're complaining about an inability to meet a deadline. Now, we wouldn't be in this situation if the government had listened to what we were saying and many others and appealed the decision. At the very first instance, rather than defend their legislation like a government is supposed to do, this the assisted dying regime is liberal legislation. It was the previous majority liberal government that brought it in. Okay. And at the first instance of, of uh, a, a judge in Quebec striking down some provisions, Rather than appeal the decision to the Court of Appeal or ultimately to the Supreme Court of Canada, they've brought in C7, 
and then they prorogued the House, and now they're complaining okay, about well, deadlines. Not, notwithstanding, uh, pro, notwithstanding prorogation, uh, the changes the Liberals uh, are making now or proposing now are presumably the same changes they would have made five months ago if, if they did it five months ago. So I guess, I guess my question is, knowing where other parties stand in the House, uh, isn't the fate of, what's, of this proposal, isn't it ordained just a question of timing here? And, and the timing's important because it's up against the Quebec uh, deadline. You know, it's not, Peter, though. Timing is not an issue. The, the the government has twice gone to the Quebec court and received extensions. They could do that again. I think they're trying to ratchet up pressure. I think it's for a very important reason that the disability community in Canada, unanimously, from coast to coast, national and provincial bodies, persons uh, uh, with disabilities that are represented by these groups, they came to our Justice Committee and they've been going to the Senate Committee that's been studying this and they're saying this bill treats them like a second-class citizen. It will undermine uh, persons with disabilities, their ability to, to function in Canada, and they're being singled okay. out as being eligible for assisted death. And they feel that that's unequal treatment right, let, due to their uh, disability. And even Minister okay. Qualtro, the minister responsible okay, I need for to, I, I need, I need I need to get your colleagues in here as well. Disagrees with this bill. I need to get your colleagues in. Lindsay Matheson, let me, let me turn to you here. Uh, where's the NDP on this bill? So uh, New Democrats recognize that uh, the government is up against the deadline, and um, we're concerned that, of course, um, as of December 18th uh, and that deadline, those safety protocols that conservatives say that they are so concerned about um, will not be in effect. And so this bill would ensure that they are. So that's one of the things we're concerned about. But but of course, we we hear the, the voices of people within the disabilities community. We've heard their concerns. And one of the things that we did right away um, to is to um, bring forward a, a letter to the minister, um, uh, to Minister Qualtro, asking for um, a income support to be brought forward by the federal government to ensure that people living with disabilities have what they need. They don't have to worry about this idea of being stuck in such um, a vulnerable poverty and, and struggling just to get by to, to see the value and worth of being able to thrive. Um, and that's what we've brought forward as a solution to, to work forward to recognize that um, that we need to fix this in different ways. All right, so you, you, you support the bill, but, you, but you, also, you, also, you also support more supports for uh, for Canadians who may be affected by this, some Absolutely. of the most vulnerable. Uh, to, Absolutely, right. ensuring a guaranteed basic income for, All right. for Ms. people Ms. with disabilities. Mr. Verani, um, so the deadline is looming. Uh, the House was supposed to rise uh, for the for the break, uh, an, an extended break till the end of January, this Friday. Uh, should we expect the House, uh, the government to move to keep the House here next week or at the very least to recall it to make sure this legislation meets the deadline? Or are you going to go back to the Quebec court and ask for another extension? I think what you should expect is at least four out of the five political parties on the Hill are willing to try to meet that deadline. And that's what we're working towards. With respect to seeking extensions, I just informed Mr. Moore that one extension was sought because there was an election. The second uh, extension was sought because of a pandemic. To seek an extension based on obfuscation by Her Majesty's official opposition should not be something that anyone would countenance. With respect to safeguards, I'll return to the point that Lindsay made, and the NDP made helpful amendments, which we accepted at committee. But if your concern is procedural safeguards, on December 19th, if we don't pass this legislation, there are no safeguards whatsoever. So the 90-day assessment period that's required in order to access made if you're not at the end of your life will disappear. 
So if the actual concern is genuine on the part of the Conservative Party of Canada, then I would urge Mr. O'Toole and his colleagues to actually work diligently to ensure that All we right, can have Mr. a Moore, on this Mr. Bill. Moore, there is that point that if the, if the deadline comes and goes, uh, we, could, we could be looking at uh, sort of a patchwork of rules and regulations on this where uh, course, Quebec Peter, has one and thing and the rest of the country has something different. Of the government's Sorry, go ahead. Of course, that's a direct result of the, of the government's failure to appeal the decision. They've, they've acted because of one court's decision, and we're not going to take lessons from the Liberals about timelines when they prorogued the House. When they prorogued, every one of their bills that was active, including this one, had to start over from scratch. So Conservative MPs, are we're not going to apologize for continuing to do our job as the only party that is standing up for persons with disabilities. Even Minister Qualtro said that what's happening to people with disabilities being proactively offered made is wrong. So even within the Liberal cabinet, they want this discussion over with because they don't like what they're hearing from the persons with disabilities community. And we're going to keep defending those people. All right, Lindsay Matheson, to purport that there's unanimity is categorically false. Chantelle Petitclerc is a person with disability sponsoring the bill in the House. Stephen Fletcher, a person with disability, former Conservative cabinet minister, supports the initiative of the legislation. The legislation was prompted it. by litigants who were persons with disabilities. And what the court said about persons with disabilities is that they're entitled right. to the same Mr. Randy, let me go and to autonomy as persons Lindsay Matheson, I'm going to give the final say to you here. Mm -hmm. So um, what, what about some of the concerns expressed by these groups? Um, um, I mean, if, if the bill passes and, it, and uh, are you satisfied if it passes the way it is, it has, does it contain the necessary supports the NDP's asked for? Um, the the bill certainly uh, we will be supporting it. We have we have supported it. We we want to ensure that people have those safeties and those protocols. But one thing that we have to push for, um, despite all the fighting back and forth, uh, people living with disabilities have been waiting far too long for the supports that they need to ensure that they have that that security of income and that security of 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 life and and the ability to do as they they want to. Um, so that's what we're going to be pushing for. That's what we'll push for from both parties who say that they, they are so concerned with people living with disabilities. All right. Lots to continue watching on this file. Not sure where it's headed or when this bill may be passed or whether the government uh, ends up moving for an extension. But uh, we'll continue to follow. Thank you all for your time tonight. Appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Well, I'm joined now by colleagues from the Parliamentary Press Gallery. Susan Delacorte is a columnist with the Toronto Star. Joël Denis Bellavance is the Parliamentary Bureau Chief for La Presse. And John Iveson is a columnist for the National Post and Parliamentary Bureau Chief for Post Media. Good to see you all again. Uh, let's look ahead a couple of days here to the uh, big First Minister's virtual meeting that takes place on Thursdays. Uh, the Premiers want to talk long-term increases in health transfers. Prime Minister is making it clear uh, he wants to talk primarily about the COVID response and vaccine rollout and a lot less about permanent transfers. Uh, what are your expectations for this meeting on Thursday, John? What should we watch for? Well, given the, the diverging expectations and hopes, uh, not a lot. Um, you know, Trudeau's just unveiled a, a fiscal update that shows we're nearly at $400 billion in uh, deficit this year. The health transfers would be, you know, that would be a recurring cost to the federal government, a huge fed, uh, recurring cost. And I think he's got a fair case to, to, to say that there's no evidence that the provinces actually need this. And the provinces kept to spending increases of around 3% uh, for most of the, the middle of the decade. And that's really where they're, where they're pegged at the moment. They're, they're, they rise in an escalator of, 
uh, growth in the economy or 3%. Mm-hmm. And surprisingly, the, the cost increases of an ageing population are not that dramatic. I mean, it turns out that people who become seniors at the age of 65 don't cost any more uh, between the ages of 65 and 70. So it's not a rocketing amount of expense uh, the way that uh, the received wisdom might have it. I just think that, that uh, the, the case for transferring that money has not been made. I mean, the, I think the provinces could do a much better job at containing the costs that they spend on doctors. They do a pretty good job in okay. drugs and hospitals, but doctors, it's a huge expense. And the federal government just does not have the money at the moment to, to, to uh, engage in massive increases in recurring social spending. All right, Susan, Susan what do you think? Because, the, I mean, it's in the context as well as Christopher, of Christian Freeland saying, look, over the next three years, I'm, I'm looking to spend 70 to $100 billion, and a lot of that will be on social spending. And the premiers must be saying, send some of that our way. Yeah, it's funny. I've um, I, I developed a kind of a shorthand in my head for how this meeting is going to go Fed-wise. I think Ottawa's walking in there uh, with short-term stuff on their mind. COVID, COVID response, they can make the case quite convincingly that they have paid the lion's share of the cost for the pandemic. All those vaccines rolling out right now uh, have been paid for by the federal government. Um a lot of the uh, the pandemic relief, I forget they kept giving figures in the economic update, and it's kind of a wag their finger reminder. Yeah, well, eight, they're saying, uh, you know, eight, 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 uh, eight cents out of every dollar, or eight dollars out of every ten dollars on pandemic right. relief from governments is coming from the federal government. But the long-term thing they're walking in there with, too, is don't forget that economic statement also said they want national standards on on long-term care and long-term care residents is where we see the second wave of this pandemic hitting again. So I not, think... Not to mention, Susan, not to mention childcare, which, which uh, right. the feds mm-hmm. want childcare. to impose and, and they, they, they could use as a bargaining tool. Right. So I, I think that the federal government is going in there with, uh, uh, to paraphrase Donald Trump, COVID, 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 uh, <laughs> all the way through this uh, meeting. And... The Fed, the, I, I actually don't expect that, the, the, you know, it'll be 3.30 and they'll say, oh, look at the time. We forgot to talk about long-term transfers to the provinces. So I think it'll be pushed to another meeting. Okay, really. Uh, J.D., do you think the premiers will let that happen? Uh, they'll try to get uh, to pry out some money from the federal government, but the federal government is already making the case that they've invested a lot of money to face, to help the provinces face the increased costs due to the pandemic. That they've sent 19 billions this year already to the provinces, so they can buy new personal productive equipment. You know, rapid testing and other equipment needed for the hospital. So they are preparing their case, and I'm sure that they've already written the communique on their part to say that we've done enough. Uh, here's what we should do now to make sure that Canadians are safe. And they'll be focusing a lot on the vaccination, as mentioned uh, by Susan, the COVID, COVID, the, the near, the short-term uh, uh, challenges of making sure that everybody's vaccinated in, in the early uh, years, early months of next year. And I wonder whether, whether it gets blurted out in a meeting, unlikely, John, between leaders, but certainly in the Prime Minister's back pocket will be these stories the last couple of days from the Ontario fiscal watchdog that says Ontario has around $10 billion in unspent funds it committed to the pandemic response. And if you walk into a meeting with the other side, knowing that you've got a whole bunch of money you're not even spending, uh, what does that right. do to your case? 
I mean, I think I think that that's probably true of many of the provinces. They've got money they haven't spent, and you know, the federal government has got uh, a lot of commitments on its on its plate. If even if it's going to spend a hundred billion dollars on stimulus, that's short term money. That's not long term health cost increases. Although I, you know, I do agree. There's a point that Susan's made that mm. the federal government does want uh, national standards on long term care homes. It does want childcare, but it also wants the federal, the provincial governments to come to some kind of agreement on interprovincial trade barriers. And that's within their gift. And frankly, that's what the provinces should be doing. That's that should be mission number one instead of bleating to Ottawa that they're not getting enough money. Okay, JD, uh, sorry, Susan, let me switch to you quite here. This, you know, we found it this week that Michael Sabia, uh, you know, the former head of the, of the, the, the uh, uh, a bunch of different investment companies. Uh, he was a public servant many, many years ago, head of, uh, of Bell in this country and different things, been uh, head of the infrastructure bank. And now he's, he's been pulled in, to, uh, handpicked by the prime minister to be the deputy minister of finance to lead part of this big rebuild and green infrastructure. What do you make of that? It reminds me a little bit of uh, Anne McClellan, the former justice minister, former deputy prime minister. And, you know, every time the federal government needed somebody to do something, it's let's call Anne McClellan. Um, so um, we, we were talking about this yesterday in my office and we're saying that what it really tells me is that Krista Freeland is assembling uh, her own team around her and her own forces and they believe that one of the great strengths of Krista Freeland, they thought this when they put her in um, in charge of trade negotiations too, was the contact she had outside government. It, it does tell a certain amount about what the government thinks about where its strengths are and that in this next phase of whatever they're doing, that they want the outside Ottawa contacts more than the entrenched public servant view. What do you think, uh, J.D.? Well, the fact that the, the government wants to bring in Michael Sylvia shows that there might be some turmoil within the finance department about the vision the government wants to pursue, uh, meaning more investment in some key areas. You mentioned about the, uh, the, the $100 billion investment in trying to rekindle the economy after the COVID-19 is over. Uh, I'm not sure that the deputy minister uh, that was there, Paul Vachon, shared that kind of vision. Maybe he wanted to put the brakes on some of those investments like Bill Morneau. So, the two team, the two, the duo that was uh, at, uh, at the helm of the finance department before the COVID started, Bill Morneau and Paul Rochon are now gone. So you've got two new players. And Michael Sebia does share a lot of visions of the prime minister on the key investments that should be made in terms of uh, green infrastructure, for example, the new economy of tomorrow. And Michael Sebia has influenced, in fact, the vision of the government. He was the one, the biggest proponent of the infrastructure bank while he was at the Casa de Poetas Mine, Quebec. So right. he's, he knows the beast. He knows how to handle it. And that's why I think he's now the key number person, the number one person at the finance department. All right. Uh, he knows the beast, uh, John Iveson. Uh, what, what, what do you think lies ahead for him? And what, why do you think he's there? Well, I think my colleagues have hit the nail on the head. I mean, firstly... Uh, he is Christian Freeland's appointment. I think uh, he is there to help make sure that what happened to Bill Morneau does not happen to Christian Freeland, in that if there's any successes, it, the credit goes to Justin Trudeau, and if there's any failures, it, the, the blame lands with her. I think that he will be a credible person to push back um, on too much spending. I mean, I, I don't think that he's, he's going to tighten the purse strings by any means. I think he's there to do things. I don't think he would have, I mean, I think he's 68. Yeah. I don't think he would have come into that job unless he wanted to leave his mark 
but I don't think that he's going to be spending willy-nilly and bankrupt the country either. And that's uh, so. That, so, so it's good for the country. It's good for Christian Freeland. She's now got somebody that she can point to and say, "Well, uh, you know, the deputy minister doesn't think this is a good idea to, to spend this money right now." Um, he's also got, as JD pointed yeah. out, the experience at the infrastructure bank. We're running short of money, but there is money at the infrastructure bank. There's about twenty-five billion dollars of their spending. They can probably get the same amount from the public sector. So some of this stuff that the, the government wants to do in stimulus right. could come from the infrastructure bank. All right, we'll see. We'll, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, out of time for tonight. But uh, thank you all, and uh, we'll talk again. As some talk, the House of Commons could be sitting again next week. Uh, so maybe we'll be chatting again. Take care. Okay. Bye, everyone. Take care, Peter. Bye-bye. Bye, Peter. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics from all of us here at CPAC. Thanks again for watching, and I'll see you next time.